Hello and welcome to Trinity College Dublin Talks. With us today is Dan Bradley, who is Professor of Population Genetics at the University's Smurfit Institute. Professor Bradley is a sort of Indiana Jones of the genetics world, using DNA from human remains and animal remains to puzzle out some of the greatest mysteries in human history. Who are we? Who were our ancestors? When did we start domesticating wolves, for instance, and turning them into dogs? Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Indiana Dan. <laughs> Better than Dan Jones, huh? <laughs> uh, Dan, I think it's fair to say that over the last 10 years or so, a new field has emerged, which is kind of revolutionizing our understanding of human history and archaeology and anthropology, and that field is called ancient DNA. And that's, that's your field. You're working with different geneticists around the world to kind of piece together the human story. And then you have a kind of particular speciality in a way, which is not human or ancient DNA, but ancient DNA as it relates to, to animals, to cattle, to, to, to dogs and so on, to kind of see how we've, how we've changed, I guess, uh, the DNA of, of cattle by, by breeding, and, and probably they've changed themselves just as we have over the years. It's, it's, I know your research has been reprinted in literally hundreds of newspapers. It's something that, that, that clearly resonates with a lot of people. But if we, if we kind of start, start at the beginning, what drew you into this? Can you kind of tell me how, how you became interested in ancient DNA? That's a good question. Um, well, I, I trained, first of all, I, I did my undergraduate degree in Britain and I came here to do a PhD with, in, in medical genetics with Peter Humphreys. Um, so I was always interested in, in really important genetics, really, really important genetics, like the genetics of, of what makes people ill or incapacitated. Um, but there's another wing of genetics, which is really, really interesting genetics. And the two aren't, of course, um, they're not um, contradictory. It can be both. And I suppose research uh, in its end, you shouldn't be doing research if it's not either useful or really interesting. And as I say, preferably both. Um, so in studying human genetics, I was always drawn to the past as well. And that's just a personal interest. Mm. Um, I remember as a child uh, taking an encyclopedia on the ancient Near East and Mesopotamia and the fert Fertile Crescent out of the library at home, which everybody thought was a bit odd, um, and, uh, and dinosaurs and all that sort of thing. So um, the, the interface between the two always interested me. And they're not um, orthogonal to each other. Because if you want to understand the present, you also have to understand the past. It's true of politics and of history. It's also true of genetics. Uh, because the processes that operated in the past made us what we are today, and they're still continuing. One of the, one of the, the biggest surprises for me when I, when I read your, your work is how populations kind of seem to change completely. So you, you went to Newgrange, which is one of the oldest structures in the world. You found bones there. And what, what my understanding is what your research shows is that the bones of those people are completely, the genetics of those people are completely different to the genetics of Irish people today. So there was kind of a, a clear out in a way. And presumably that is a common story, or is it not a common story? Is that, how is that in other countries? And 
what does that tell us about the people who, who live on the island of Ireland today? So, um, well, first of all, I should say it's not just me, it's me and my team. Mm. And I give a shout out to Lara Cassidy, who's done a lot of this ancient Irish people work. Um, the, the history of ideas are very interesting here because we've known for hundreds of years that um, cultures have changed in the past. We had the Stone Age. Before that, we had um, called the Neolithic, the New Stone Age, where that was the first farmers. Before that, people didn't farm. They just lived by hunting and gathering. After uh, the Stone Age, we had the Copper Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. So we've always known that there's been a change in what one calls the material culture of people in Ireland and elsewhere. Um, now, early in the 20th century, very much archaeologists in interpreted that as new people coming in. Um, the, the people of the beaker, the people of uh, whatever. And uh, the problem with that and the way it was written, there was a certain colonialism about it, a certain um, idea that superior types were pushing aside mm. um, inferior types, and particularly in the context of the history of the early 20th century, where colonialism, European dominant imperialism, was yep. still very much alive. Um, and there was a backlash against that from the 60s onwards uh, to an extreme view where things might change, but people stayed the same. And that migration of peoples wasn't wasn't really something that we should be thinking about and um, I think where genomics came in ancient genomics which is well, some was what we do it's the ability to uh, not just study the genetics of people from the present but study the genetics of people and animals from the past if, if you like sort of genetic time traveling um, where that contributed was that when one looks at, for example, in Ireland, hunter-gatherers, farmers, Bronze Age, one sees that the genomes change. We don't see complete continuity. And that's been seen all over Europe and elsewhere. And how do you interpret that? Well, th these genomes are so different at these different um, horizons um, that they must have been largely shaped by big migrations. So genomics, it brings to this debate in archaeology a new layer of data, and it's very hard to argue with it. What we see is massive migrations coming in through Europe, first of all with the first farmers, who are bringing the ability to grow wheat and barley and farm cattle, sheep, goats, pigs. And then secondly, um, roughly 2000 BC, we see a big influx along with, with the Bronze Age, or around the time of the Bronze Age. So we see population turnover. Um, now, what does that mean? What does it mean for an understanding of who we are? Uh, well, it, it, in a way, it's sad. I, you know, one of the things that drew me to this field, I, like everybody in Ireland, we all have these fantastic ancient monuments in our backyards in my parish there's one it's a portal tomb i always looked at it and imagined that you know my ancestors <laughs> were there um, 
Now, some component of ancestry might have come through, but not the major component. So it's, it's migration. People have been migrating in, in periods forever. And in fact, it's not a big shock because if we look at Ireland today, in Ulster, we had a big migration mm. in the 1600s. Um, with the Normans, we had a big migration from, from Britain 400 years earlier. Um, the Vikings left something of an imprint. Migration's not new. Um, and, and we shouldn't shy away from the fact that it not only happens today, but it happened in past millennia. So does that work for places like Egypt as well? Is it the case that the people who built the pyramids, for instance, are not the same people as the people who live in modern-day Cairo? Uh, the pyramids are in the Bronze Age, and in some places you see a degree of continuity. Um, so I would hesitate to say, without detailed knowledge, mm. that Egyptians today are exactly the same as, as that um, productive civilization in the past, but I'd be very surprised if there wasn't a considerable flow-through from it. And in fact, from the same horizon in Ireland, from about 2000 BC until now, we've got a considerable flow through, more so than mo in most places, okay, in okay. fact. Um, one of the places in Europe, well, there are two places in Europe which have an earlier sustainable um, or sustained population type from, from the earlier period from their first farmers, and that is the Basque country, uh, who also have a language that's different from the rest of Europe and presumably mm. something that's been there for longer and um, Sardinians. So different... People on the edges. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there are reasons why some places maintain populations and some don't. But back to Egypt, back to Egypt, of course, there's a huge uh, Mediterranean um, population that has influenced Egypt, including Greeks and, uh, and other, other um, traders. In a way, you've kind of replaced linguistics, haven't you? For a long time, it was linguists who, who by looking at languages, tried to trace how, how people moved around. Now we have this, not easier, but, but probably more accurate way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, but just, just yeah. on that, um, mm. the interaction with linguistics is interesting. And in fact, it's true. We've borrowed some of the ideas from linguistics. The idea that you can reconstruct a family tree of languages. To some extent, we, we try and construct family trees of populations. And uh, it's a very interesting, very interesting field about how the languages we speak today, and or like Irish, most of us formerly spoke in, in the recent mm. past, um, how they relate to each other and how they relate to the peoples who move around. Now, genetics can't tell us that exactly because there's nothing in the genes that tells you what language someone was speaking. But whenever you do see a sharp change in genetics, i.e. a large migration, at least that's a horizon where language change could have occurred. And um, So how does it work, for instance, Hungarian and Finnish are connected, aren't they, linguistically? They're, they're, they're one European language and then pretty much every other language in Europe is another one. Is there any... A no is there any sign that, that, that people in Hungary and Finland share some kind of genetic uh, overlap that, that the rest of Europe doesn't have? Or yeah, so you're correct. So in, in, in one sense that most of Europe, and in fact beyond Europe, all the way to um, Pakistan, Iran, um, uh, share what's known as languages from a particular family called the Indo-European family. Mm. And... Um, was first discovered by a, a British colonial judge who was stationed in India and noticed that Sanskrit 
had words in common with Latin and Greek and Old German. Now, that language family has been phenomenally successful. It stretches all the way from um, uh, inscriptions in, in China to the West, to Urshores, to Connemara. Uh, Irish and Persian belong yeah. to the same language family. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, so that, that implies they had a common ancestor. And there are some exceptions. So the exceptions in Europe are the Basque language, um, the Hungarians and Finns, who both have uh, very strong Eastern elements in their languages, but they're not the same language. Mm. It's just that they both had a certain amount of influx from the East, and you can see that in the genetics. Right. More so in Finland, less so in Hungary, but there's some trace of that. Mm. That, that That's where their difference comes from, from a second migratory um, push in there. The Basques are different in that it looks like their language matches their genetics, which seems that they've had less input from a great Bronze Age migration through Northern Europe. So the Basques are genetically different to the rest of Spain? Uh, somewhat. Somewhat, yeah. Somewhat, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. But, but it's interesting when you think about the politics of today and the, 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 you know, the, the attempts to, to make the Basque country a separate political entity. It's interesting that genetics is at some level yes. bubbling away at the bottom. But, but I, I, would, I would put a caveat in that, yeah. in, in that it's very hard to mix genetics and politics because Very dangerous, uh, yes yeah. and um, the nat human nature is that we marry each other and things get mixed in every generation so there is no convenient line that you can draw around the Basque region mm. or any other region of of, um, of of conflict or dispute such as Northern Ireland mm. uh, on mm. which you've got all the people with of one culture or genetics and all the other people on another. And in fact, the two do, do not necessarily combine. You, you could be a, a very um, strong Basque speaker, uh, Basque culturalist, and not have the genetic signature, just in the same way that you could be uh, a very strong gale goer with uh, African roots. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Let's, let's come to Northern Ireland, where you, where you come from originally, Dan, because that's another really fascinating part of your research. And that is that I don't know quite know how to put it, like the idea of a kind of a strong, strong gene that, that the, there was a clan, the O'Neills, that they, they, they thrived for about 400 years and that something like, is it one in six, one in ten men in the north today, you can see that genetically they were related to this, this one person who, whose name we don't know and we don't know much about them. But and it's the same, with, it's the same in, in Mongolia, I think, where one in ten men have some kind of genetic uh, link with Genghis Khan. How does that work? It's an incredible thought that, that somebody could be so genetically dominant. Well, it's maybe not that difficult to understand with Genghis, um, given his recorded behaviour. And um, there are estimates that, that Genghis had thousands and thousands of offspring. Um, right. uh, and we'll not go into the gory mm. details of how that happened. But basically war crimes of uh, yes. different age. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the genetics of it, and this, this is work we did over 10 years ago, um, we, we looked at Y chromosomes in Ireland, and Y chromosomes are the part of the genetic material that's passed down from fathers to sons that, that make, make us male or, or, or female because of the lack of one. And um, the, in Irish tradition, that is how surnames are passed down also. Not always, 
by and large, thrown through the, the patrilineal uh, line. And what we found was we did a, a genetic fingerprint just of the Y chromosome, and we found that there was one genetic fingerprint that was very common, uh, I wouldn't say in Northern Ireland, in the northwest of Ireland, which northwest, included yeah. Donegal yeah. and um, bits of Connemara, uh, Derry, Tyrone, and there, fully one in five, in fact, if you consider it in a broader sense, in, in Donegal, maybe half wow. of people had the same reasonably recent male ancestor. This is incredible. So half of people in Donegal, which is a large, one of our largest counties, by size, not necessarily by population, share a single, single common ancestor about... What, about that? Yeah, about a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago. Oh, maybe more, about 1,500 years ago. Uh, the timing is very loose. Um, and, and when we, we tried to explain that, I knew about the Genghis Khan um, research because it was colleagues in Oxford who did that. And um, the story with Genghis was that Genghis had lots of children in his lifetime, so his Y chromosome um, was passed on more than normal. Uh, but also he set up dynasties in different places that held power for hundreds of years. And uh, an unfortunate fact about the past is that in many societies, powerful men had more children in a way that powerful women could not mm. because there's only so many children a woman can have in her lifetime. Yeah. And um, the, the Genghis, it wasn't obvious to me about Genghis, how Genghis would fit in, in Ireland, but then I sort of knew in the back of my mind something about the ANL. And it actually is personal because I have the Y chromosome, and I knew, <laughs> <laughs> I knew um, that Bradleys were an Inel family, O'Brolochines. And, and the story of the Inel is that they had a mythical common ancestor called Neil the Gullock, or Niall of the Nine Hostages, who was a character who lived round about the time of St. Patrick. Uh, and the important thing about him is, um, mythically, he set up um, dynasties. His sons moved north, Connell and... Um, and Owen, as in Turconnell and Turon, and what is for sure, myth aside, is that uh, for about 800 years, um, families, extended families, who understood themselves as being male line descendants of Nile, held power in the northwest and sometimes further south, until the, the flight of the earls. Right. And uh, so there is a, a an explanation. Mm. It's not necessarily what Niall did in his lifetime, but there were powerful groups, powerful male line um, individuals who um, who held power, and they did have more children. I, I sort of, when I started reading about this, I expected medieval Irish Gaelic culture to be a bit like the 1950s, where everybody behaved themselves, and then you find it. Oh no, it wasn't. And and you know, there, there, many of these powerful men had many many children. And they, one, one thing they didn't warm to, they became Christian, <laughs> yeah, but they didn't warm to mo <laughs> monogamy, <laughs> monogamy as, a, no. as one of the rules. It's always had a problem. Um, yeah, that's kind of like a bit like Napoleon in a way, isn't it? Putting his brothers around Europe, trying to do the same thing, almost, almost subconsciously to, to kind of... Sure, all the royal families of Europe are related. Exactly. Queen Elizabeth at this yeah, stage. Yeah. Does, it, does it frustrate you? It seems to me that Genetics is is uh, it's a very fashionable topic at the moment, isn't it? Like there, there, mm. there, are, there are crime series on TV. Uh, people seem to think that every crime can be, be solved by a little bit of DNA testing. Um, 
people make all kinds of generalizations. The cure to most illnesses is, is believed nowadays by most of us to, to, to kind of have a kind of genetic component. Do you think we expect too much from genetics or are we actually at the beginning of something hugely kind of radical that will really change knowledge forever? I mean, mm. I, I, I don't know. I, I, when you talk about a genetic test, like testing for your Y chromosome, I have no idea if that's a really easy thing to do. Do you just take a bit of blood? And, or is it a very difficult thing to do? And, and what I'm trying to say is, will there be constraints? You know, will we be able, due to cost and all kinds of other things, will we, is genetics testing always going to be a difficult thing? Or is it going to become part and parcel of everybody's life? Um, so you said one very important word there, and you said component. Genetics is a component of very many important health issues, but determines relatively few. And um, so, so what does that mean? It means when you study genetics, you find out more about them, and it absolutely can lead to new therapies. And I, I have been involved, continue to be interested in, in, in medical genetics, and that's why we do it. You know, it's a long and windy path to therapy, but the path can, can be traversed. Um, in, in terms of, and, and there can't be a, a, a mistaken view out there, but once you know the genetic code, you know everything. You don't. Mm, you don't. You don't. It's a component. Um, and it, one needs to be a bit careful with some of the medical commercial tests that are out there. You know, to some extent, they're, they're catering to the worried well. And I'm capable of being one of those. I'm as big a <laughs> hypochondriac as anybody. And the way I deal with it, I just keep away from it, you know. Um, uh, and that, you know, you, you might do genetic tests and find that you're slightly more likely to get diabetes than the average or slightly less. And really, for a lot of people, um, you might be as well just writing down a bit of paper, get more sleep, take more exercise, don't smoke, eat more fruit, and um, various other paternalistic things. So, and, you know, some people are unfortunate enough to have illnesses that are very strongly genetic controlled and we certainly never trivialize that uh, but most people will die from illnesses that have a genetic component but which have other aspects to them which we absolutely can't control or in the end of course there will be something we can't control because we're all going to die hmm. almost to kind of wrap up although the the exploration of the human the human genetics is, is a kind of a worldwide thing. One area where you're a you and your team are a particular, and your colleagues here in Trinity are a particular kind of specialist, is um, animal genetics. Why, why have you uh, looked into that? Why have you devoted so much energy to that? Um, well, I come from a farm. And I remember being asked in an interview for promotion here in Trinity, you know, you're working on humans, dogs, cows, sheep, goats, you know, I don't think we've worked on pigs. Um, why? Why all this stuff? <laughs> and <laughs> it was the first time I thought about it and I thought, well, all those were there on my dad's farm in South Derry, um, including humans, mm. you know, Irish humans. Um, so there's, there's two reasons why one works on, on the, the genomics of domestic animals. First of all, they're very important. You know, they're part of what feeds the world. 
And um, if you understand their genomics, you, you understand something about how better to breed them. And that's a very active field at the moment, right. a very mm. important field. Mm. And secondly, when you, you, if you're interested in the human past, our past is tied up with these animals. And their harnessing of their power to feed, but also power to pull trucks, to um, give us hides, to give us wool, to clothe us, that was, these were some of the most um, world-changing events in human prehistory. So understanding those is, is, a, compelling, um, is a compelling field. So it's, it's, it's to understand us really, how we became the, the alpha species, yeah. how we, yep, how yeah, we made yeah. those, kind of harnessed the, the energy. Tell me, I'm, just, just as a last question, I'm, you, you, know, you, you talked about growing up on a, on a farm there in, in, in South Derry, which is kind of rural part of the country. And then earlier on, you were talking about borrowing a book from the library on the, the Fertile Crescent. And I, I'm, I'm kind of beginning to form a picture of the young kind of 12-year-old Dan Bradley, maybe. Um, what do you think are the qualities needed for a good geneticist? You know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe there's somebody out there who's 17 or 18 listening to this. Maybe they're interested in what, what you've just said. And they're thinking, maybe I should do genetics. What, what, what kind of qualities does uh, she or he need? Well, the first quality I think you need for studying any university course is you've got to find it interesting. That's the first thing I would say to a student. If you find it interesting, that's, that's the first thing because then you'll be motivated, you'll do well, and there may be doors will open to you that you don't know exist. And in fact, it's a truism that many people will end up working in jobs that don't exist yet. Yeah. The world of work is changing so fast. So do something that interests you. Now, genetics, within the biological subjects. It's sort of a quirky one on its own. And I think it, it, it suits people who are quite logical thinkers. Okay. It's a very logical part of biology. It's not the only part of biology mm. like that, but it's a very logical part. And increasingly, um, with the new techniques that allow us to sequence whole genomes, like the first human genome took 10 years and $200 million to sequence. <laughs> And now a human genome can be sequenced in, in a couple of days for $1,000. So there are, of course, so, millions of human genomes being sequenced uh, for medical reasons and other reasons. Um, it also suits, it's going to suit someone who's not scared of data okay. and is not scared of maths. You don't have to be a genius in maths. But, but you have to be pretty good. Well, I'd you say don't, you're being I, modest. Can, you know. No, I, th I think it's most important that you're not scared of it, okay. that you're prepared to engage with it. Mm. Um, you know, statistics, basically. So is a lot of your work done on a computer, kind of crunching data? Or um, is it blue skies thinking? Oh, uh, a lot of my work is, is worrying about budgets. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spreadsheets, yeah. yeah. Excel, yeah. Um, uh, blue skies... kids, everybody has to worry about budgets. It's just the, uh, the red tape to do what you like in life, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah. it is. Um, uh, my work... The best part of my work is getting to engage on a daily basis with people who are younger than me and smarter than me and who are uh, very enthused and interested in, what, in the work that we're doing together in the research group. That's the best part, my PhD students and postdocs. Um, so I do get to do that. That's a bit of blue sky thinking. It's not just me doing the blue sky thinking. Everybody's doing the blue sky thinking. Um, but maybe if you're in school and you're finding this interesting genetic subject of genetics, but also you're pretty good at biology and maths. Is that what I'm hearing? 
that would be an indicator that it might be the right subject. For yeah, you. definitely, yeah. definitely. Now, what I would say is genetics is quite broad. Genetics finds its way into every aspect of biology. We've talked about history, and we've talked about agricultural genetics, and we've talked about medical genetics, but there's evolutionary genetics, uh, there's plant genetics, there's cancer genetics, um, there's psychiatric genetics. You know, it's very broad. And um, what I would say is, whereas absolutely being good at maths or being not scared of maths is, is, is a good attribute, there are some people who, who take careers in genetics that veer towards other aspects of genetics where it's not so important. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be completely put off. If you mm. find it interesting, you don't have to be a maths whiz. But in my end of it, it helps. And my end is the end that's crunching numbers where we do sit in front of computers. The research is maybe, it was more than half computers now and less than half of the white coat and test tubes. But we, we do have both. Having said that, we're sitting in your office and if I look out of the window of your office, there's a huge laboratory, just as one imagines laboratories to be with, you know, full of pipettes and so on. It is a, it is a, a very, you know, it's a very tangible thing as well, isn't it? Uh, you know, yeah, 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 but we've, we've got three computers out there that cost 20 grand each as well. And well, people are spending more of their time in front of screens and drinking coffee than, than, than one less. Yeah. 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 Dan Bradley, thank you very much for, for talking to us today. You're welcome.